Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Charting Queer Health, a podcast at the intersection of queer culture, healthcare, and research. On behalf of Howard Brown Health in Chicago, as always, I'm your host, Matt Lesky. I'm a cis, white, gay man, and a Chicago resident. But most importantly, every week I have the incredible opportunity to sit down with various experts from across our organization and across our community to learn from their expertise, amplify their stories and voices, and advance the conversation surrounding queer healthcare. Today's episode centers around religion, specifically religious trauma. This is a big topic, and I intend to do more episodes focusing on religion, its pros, its cons, how it impacts the lives of queer people. Uh, But this one specifically is about religious trauma, the negative effects that religion might have had on queer people's lives, how we process that, how we move on, if we move on. If any of this material might be uh, triggering or upsetting to you, listen with caution. Joining us today is Ellie Hutchinson Cervantes. Ellie, thank you so much for coming. I'm excited to catch up with you. We are old classmates, so this will be fun. Do you mind introducing yourself, what you do for a living, and your pronouns, please? Yeah, it's wonderful to be here. I'm Ellie. I use she, her pronouns, and I'm currently a social impact communications consultant. So I work with nonprofits to um, do storytelling and messaging that advance causes related to immigrants' rights, human rights, um, and other issues. And in addition to that, I also do some spiritual community building work and um, enjoy having conversations like these, kind of in the intersection of spirituality and faith and justice um, and healing. I love that. Yeah. So you are uniquely positioned to um, speak to what we're here today to talk about, which is religion or more specifically religious trauma and how it might pertain to um not just the queer community because you know everybody can can struggle with uh, with religious trauma and associated effects, but but primarily the queer community. And we'll dive into all the nuances of why we're focusing on that and everything. Um, so to to back it all the way up, um, what uh, I said earlier that we're classmates, so we both went to for those listening that don't know Calvin College. Now it's Calvin University, um, which is a really small um, private religious college in Michigan um, that is run by the Christian Reformed Church, or as it's a, I don't know if it's run by is the technical term on that one, but um, affiliated with, yes, there we go. Um, So we both had religious education. There's required religion courses there. Um, So post Calvin, what led you into this kind of social justice work? Um, and specifically, why did you choose to kind of take an interest in the intersection of like religion and social justice and things? Yeah, I think even before college, it was always an interest of mine. Um, I grew up in a pretty strong and conservative Christian community. And Um, So I was always listening very closely to the stories that I was hearing about Jesus and his instructions to love our neighbors, and I took that very much to heart. And so um, from a young age, I felt this desire to help do what I can to make the world a bit of a better place. Um, And in my post-college years, that's really when I started to grapple with some of the harmful elements of the tradition I had been raised in and see how um, some aspects of that community really had wounded me. And even though I was a very spiritual person, I no longer felt comfortable in the church and began distancing myself. And 
So kind of on that journey, um, I met a lot of other people who were in a similar space and many of them happened to be queer and felt um, like for so long, these two parts of who they were, their sexual and gender identity and their religious identity were at odds and they couldn't be reconciled. And so we built community and we met regularly for conversations and just shared about what was going on in our lives. And I began to see that there was a real need for alternative spiritual spaces where people could show up as who they are and find the community and belonging that they were seeking. Um, and so in my own experience and in the lives of my friends, I began to just recognize um, the phenomenon of religious trauma, how deeply it can affect us. Um, you know, I think all you have to do is look at the statistics around depression, anxiety, and suicidality, those rates among queer people, especially in unaffirming environments. And it speaks for itself that this is profoundly um, damaging. And so part of that is what led me to pursue a degree, a Master of Divinity degree at Union Theological Seminary in New York, because I wanted to continue on my own spiritual journey of deconstructing and kind of rebuilding a new theological foundation and worldview for my life, absent of evangelicalism, which is what I'd come from. But I also wanted to learn how I could help offer um, community and spiritual care to others who, like me, kind of found themselves on the outsides of their tradition, but were still desiring some of the aspects of spirituality that they had originally found in the church. Yeah, that's an excellent explanation. Uh, thank you for sharing that because that uh, experience of, I was raised very similarly, um, very strong Christian evangelical conservative. Um, I won't say her name, but um, a certain member of Trump's cabinet uh, <laughs> funded all of the schooling I ever went to. So my K through 12 through college was all that kind of evangelicalism. Um, and so, yeah, it is this unique thing because you grow up in a lot of scenarios, not all of them, um, or at least in my experience, um, having, a, it was a great environment for me when I was not thinking about sexuality or gender or anything. Um, I felt supportive and supported and loved by uh, religious leaders, and I had a built-in community, and there was all of this, like, it, it really, I didn't feel like I was missing out, um, but like you said, you kind of leave that environment and realize, oh, this is not what it should be or could be. Um, and, and I think this topic especially is really interesting because we all, or at least in all of, uh, a lot of the people I talk to have differing, um, experiences, but a, a similar one like that, that, you know, we were raised thinking this one thing and now as adults, we're kind of grappling with, well, what do we actually want to keep from the way that we were raised? What do we want it to look like now? And, and in between. And then you start throwing the word trauma in there and the uh, you know emotional, psychological repercussions of some of these narratives that religion puts on us. And it's a, it's a huge topic. So disclaimer for everybody listening, I, you know, 
I have just one experience. Uh, and so there's probably a lot of other experiences that feed into all of this that we can't talk about. Um, but this is just ours. So, you know, it's, it's just one thing. So, um, the, the word trauma, I want to kind of like, I always like to start with like a vocab, you know, what are, how do we define that word? Because I've found, uh, and I've done a lot other episodes related to um, behavioral health topics that as our society gets better at talking about like mental health and behavioral health, that we start to use some of these words in situations that they don't apply. Um, so, you know, I've seen people say like, I have trauma from you know, this finale of this TV show or something that they didn't like or that it was, like, shocking. Uh, how do we, you know, when, when we're talking about religious trauma specifically, how do we define that? What is it and what is it not? Yeah, that's a, a great question. And I also just want to um, echo what you, what you mentioned here about we're speaking both from our experiences and those experiences both happen to be um, white evangelical American Christianity, which is a very particular experience. And um, religious trauma is something that certainly spans all traditions and can occur in a variety of environments. Um, but I'll, yeah, I'm speaking mostly from my own experience here within Christianity today. And um, trauma has a lot of different definitions. Um, I, I find it helpful to think of trauma in terms of separation. So trauma being a response to an adverse experience that fundamentally kind of alters who we are and how we perceive and relate to ourselves, others, and the world around us. So everyone reacts to environments like religious spaces differently, and that very much differs by our identities and positionality in the world. But I think in religious spaces, trauma often results from the combination of a very controlling authoritarian environment with, the, with also the harmful beliefs and theology. Mm. So it's those two factors, I think, that really create a adverse and unhealthy and sometimes toxic environment for people. That, Like you touched on in your own experience, it's not always obvious right away that it is harmful. It's very subtle, which makes it hard to recognize and acknowledge that it was um, as traumatizing as it might have been because it's so just pervasive and um, under kind of under the surface in a lot of environments. So I think in religious spaces, again, I'm speaking from the church, some of this shows up as telling people that they are fundamentally bad or sinful, that they can't trust their bodies or their desires. Um, as a woman, I was, it was very much implied that I am morally responsible for the men around me, that how I dress you know, could lead them to fall into the sin of lust. That's my responsibility. Um, there's very defined scripts um, around relationships and marriage and the path in life that queerness falls outside of. So it can be hard to imagine a future for yourself, which is very difficult. Um, I think authority is another huge one in religious spaces where authority is often located outside of yourself. So it's located with God or with the Bible or with your pastor. 
which makes it very difficult to learn to listen to and trust your own inner voice and intuition. Your intuition might be saying, this is an unhealthy environment. I don't feel safe here. I don't feel comfortable. But you might misinterpret that as, well, that's just because I'm not spiritual enough, or I just need to trust the pastor. This is the right thing to do. Um, So all of these are some examples of how trauma can um, be inflicted upon people in these toxic religious environments. And it's important to note, too, that even the process of leaving these spaces can also be traumatizing. Mm. You risk losing your community and social network, which can have social and financial implications. Um, There can be a lot of shame or even punishment. Um, It can be very disorienting. And that whole process of needing to kind of rebuild your sense of self and worldview, that's a very long journey that can be very difficult as well. Yeah, that's, I, I, my brain is going to be like going a lot during this episode, especially because, um, yeah, we just have personal like experiences with this. So it's, it's, I'm now I, everything you say, I'm kind of thinking how, you know, examples of all of that in my life. Uh, but it's, yeah, I find all of the episodes I do about these kind of, you know, emotional, sociological, um, not hard medicine, so to speak, like it's, it's not, you know, a list of, I guess it kind of is a list of symptoms, but it's, it's, it's fluid. It's hard to pin down. It's not, you know, you can't prescribe a pill to treat religious trauma, that kind of thing. It, there's so many moving parts and, um, especially as it pertains to religious trauma, it like, it comes out of so many things in a religious setting that like you, it's not attributable to like one doctrine or one, um, uh, you know, behavior or thing that you have to do as part of a religion, it's like a little bit of everything. Do, do you find that that's the case? Or is there like an overwhelming, like one factor that causes this more than anything else in religious settings? No, I think you're spot on. And I think it, it gets at what we were discussing a bit before of just how um, it's woven. It's these ways of being and relating and beliefs and values that are woven into everything that maybe some of them on their own wouldn't affect someone that much, but taken together over years can have a very profound impact on someone. And not everyone has the same reaction. I think for me, for example, I'm a pretty sensitive person. Like I shared, I've always been very spiritual. And so in church, I was listening very closely. I was paying attention. I noticed, um, you know, subconsciously now looking back that I only ever heard men preach. And so things like that, it's like I, I picked up on that message that men have authority, men are kind of closer to God, and they're serving as God's representatives in this way. Whereas someone else might be coloring in the pews and not paying attention and not care and go on with their lives. But um, I think religious trauma, there, there is actually a, I don't know if it's quite diagnosable, but there's a term religious trauma syndrome that was um, identified, I think, in 2011, so somewhat recently. Um, but it, it shares a lot of symptoms with complex PTSD. 
because again, this is not an acute form of trauma. This is not like you're in a terrible car accident. This is over the course of many years, there's somewhat harmful, various, you know, varying levels of harm being done and or that you are witnessing over the course of many years. And so um, it can be helpful to look at, you know, see PTSD or religious trauma syndrome online and see, you know, what those symptoms can be. But it's it's often related to struggles with our self-esteem and sense of self and self-confidence. Um, our relationships with others and inability kind of developmentally to judge and relate to others in a healthy way. We can struggle with trust issues, with anxiety. Um, it can manifest physically as all trauma can in issues like chronic headaches or stomach aches. Um, it can affect our sex lives and ability to feel pleasure. So there's all these different ways that complex trauma like religious trauma can affect us. And it, in my perspective, I think depending on how um, severely you were harmed in a religious environment, I think it really can take a lifetime to heal and rewire these parts of ourselves to relate in a new way. And that's, that's not to say there's not hope, it's just to recognize you know, for many years, um, for many formative years of childhood and adolescence, you were conditioned to be in one way, and now you're trying to unlearn that, and that's it's very difficult, but but possible. Yeah, yeah, you're rewiring how you perceive almost everything because religion does, you know, encompass f everything from you know the origin of our. <laughs> everything we can see and feel and exist tangibly to the, you know, how we perceive the nature of love and, and what we know about, you know, everything. So it is fundamentally changing how you think and questioning what you've been told. But I love that you brought up the like specific manifestations of religious trauma, because whenever I approach these episodes, I always kind of have like West Michigan audience in the back of my head as like if I was to share this episode with, you know, my old youth group leader or something or my old pastor, uh, what kind of questions would they be asking uh, and how do we address those? And when I thought about religious trauma, I was like, I, as is with a lot of um, issues and, and healthcare issues that are similar to this, it's, it's hard for people to take it seriously or to legitimize it without those, like, you know, specific things that are impacted. So you mentioned, like, there could be physical manifestations, but it also, you know, impacts, you know, sexual health, how we view ourselves and our self-confidence, um, how we relate to other people, all of those things. So it really does, like, legitimately, dramatically impact people who have... Um, you know, are continuing to grapple with religious trauma. So I, and, and in that same vein, I wonder, like, this might be a question that, like, you, we, we can't answer, but, like, to people that are still um, happily in the church and are, you know, very much still in that environment and are have not experienced, well, maybe, I guess they have experienced the same things we did, but they're, not experiencing trauma from it um, might look at you know what we're talking about and be like, well, that's because you're you know you left the church, you're living a different life, you're um, 
separating yourself from God's presence. All of, all of the evangelical language is coming back to me now. Um, so, like, how, what, what response do you have to people that might say, like, yeah, like, you're, you know, experiencing this discomfort because you're questioning? Like, is there a logical... You, how do you... That's always the issue with religious stuff because it's just... It's beliefs. hard to argue yeah, with yeah, God if yeah. someone's saying you know, God is telling them something. Um, yeah, I mean, I think first it's important to recognize that there's such a diversity even within one tradition. Um, so within Christianity, there's so many different types of Christian communities and so many churches, and there's a lot of progressive spaces that are not nearly, I think, as harmful as some of the spaces that you and I have inhabited. Um, but that said, there obviously are still many people who attend these types of churches that I think now many on the outside can recognize as unhealthy or toxic. Um, I think in conversations, if people aren't understanding where you're coming from, you, you just kind of have to stick with again, listening to your inner voice and what's happening in your body and honoring your truth. Like you are the expert of your own life and in religious spaces that um, that authority sometimes gets taken away from you and people tell you what you are experiencing or tell you what's good for you. And that's where it's so important to try to reground and reconnect with what's actually going on inside of me what spaces do I feel at peace in? What spaces do I feel comfortable in? What people do I want to surround myself with? And you know who promotes my well-being? And if a, the church or a particular community is not that for you, then it is legitimate to leave and to find a space that supports your growth. I think that the church Originally, in my perspective and historically looking at church history, is supposed to be a community first and foremost. And many churches have evolved to become so large that it's it's not really much of a community. And um, so I think if you can find a community, whether it's a couple friends at a cafe or you can find ways to nurture your spirit, like going for walks in nature or um, writing and journaling or um, some movement like yoga or Tai Chi, like there's all these, these ways that you can care for yourself and connect with yourself and a sense of purpose. Um, and so I think it, it just comes down to being willing to own that truth and um, respect other people's truths, but not have to take them on as your own. That's a an excellent reminder that you are you know, the authority on your own life because, you know, and now I've realized I have such people-pleasing tendencies and that could be due to a few different things. But I think a lot of it comes from growing up in a religious setting where you, you know, it's the servant leadership and and washing other people's feet and everything. And yeah, there's a lot of biblical analogies there. But, um, and, and making sure you're doing everything for everyone else at all cost and that kind of, detaches the tether you have to your own feelings about yourself where it's like, wait, I'm doing this. I'd, how do I actually feel about this? Because I've never been told to like take time for yourself. Do you like what you're doing right now? Why are you doing that for that person, etc.? Um, so that's a great like, yes, other people might have thoughts about why 
you know, what's best for you, but you are your own authority. I think it's funny that you brought up the the origins of the church in um, terms of like forming a community because um, while my schooling was reformed and probably a bit stricter, my parents started a um, non-denominational church. So um, originally it was very small, um, very, I don't want to say grassroots because that's <laughs> not the same, but uh, you know, like, occupying whatever spaces were available, very, very community, like epitome. And that, I think they they found a lot of community there, uh, a lot of um, growth and, and growing up, I did as well. But then once I approached like high school and college, um, I was the same age as the church. I was born when it started. So when I was in high school and college, it got big enough to the point it was like considered a mega church. Uh, and it was like, there was like five different worship spaces in one building, some including like, you know, a cafe where you can sip on a latte and you don't have to like be in a church setting, which like there's, we, we're not, we won't dive into like, you know, all of that. But, um, my parents eventually grew dissatisfied with it because they're like, there is no community, you know, there, it's so large, people don't know who you are and you can kind of sneak in and out the back door and go to, go to church, but not have any of the intentional community that church is designed to create. So that was very much an experience that I, I can identify with. And I also love the point about spirituality, being able to find that sense of spirituality in other activities besides, you know, the act of worship as we might have, as it might have been described to us growing up. Um, because I always remember, like, particularly during, like, worship service, whether that was, like, more traditional hymns or, or as, you know, the kind of Christian rock advent is now um when it was like really emotional that was always you know the spirit of god whatever um and i was like that you know this is the only place i can feel that emotion and then as i got older and i went to like secular concerts i was like wait i feel the same sense of emotion and like joy with life and and you know the, the crystallization of all of those good feelings in that moment, but it's not, it's secular music. So I was like, wait, I, you know, you start to question uh, where do I quote unquote see God? It, it can be through all forms of music. It can be, like you said, out in nature, um, taking time to, you know, do intentional movement like yoga, whatever that is. I think that's something actually that Calvin scratched the surface of a little bit. Um, we had a few uh, staff members that maybe got that concept a bit more of religion or spirituality being able to pervade all corners of our life um, and having everything be able to be a little bit of an act of worship. So I, I got, I enjoyed that. That was, that was good. Um, exactly. Exactly. Although I don't think that uh, faculty members there any longer. <laughs> Yeah, that was a controversial decision, but we won't dive into the history about it. So, um, this is this is all such good stuff. But to to kind of focus specifically on the queer community because that's where we find, you know, some of the the hardest trauma come in when you like, you know, the the. Let me get my words correct here. Yeah, yeah, every, everybody can can have religious trauma, and 
you know, it'll impact all corners of our lives. But the queer community, especially because their identity in most religions and most practices is considered a sin in and of itself, feel this so acutely. So for, I, I got, it'll, it'll might be an obvious answer, but if like to paint with broad strokes theologically, like why are, why is that the case? Why are queer people um, continually left out of the gospel? Uh, that's a huge question in its own podcast episode. So we don't have to go too deep, but like, why? I don't know. No, it is a heavy question. And I feel like there's multiple levels to the answer. I think on one level, there's the precedent of the tradition of what was normalized within the tradition, which certainly changed over the centuries. There's there's never really been, for example, one model of marriage, um, or it's not like Catholic priests have always been celibate. You know, there were social and historical reasons for these decisions being made, but they've become tradition. Mm -hmm. And so there's a big emphasis in most religious groups on tradition of what is normative that typically does not include queer people or queer relationships or honoring those relationships. That's not true universally. There's a lot of indigenous groups, for example, where there was Mm -hmm. space and honoring of diverse identities, but in let's say you know the largest um, world religions and especially Christianity, it's definitely true that there certainly was not a precedent for your existence. Mm-hmm. Um, in um, and it that's also there are historical examples of mystics who um, seem to be queer and you know they like queer people have always been part of the church but not necessarily in a formally recognized or integrated or honored way. So there's that. And then there's also the emphasis on sacred texts and um, looking at the Bible, for example, within Protestant Christianity, there's a lot of emphasis on the Bible being the inerrant or you know perfect infallible word of God from God's mouth There's a lot, um, and this is also a more recent development within the last couple hundred years, that that was not always the perspective on the Bible. But Mm. um, for various reasons, it has become the normative way of seeing the Bible and relating to the Bible. And so, like we kind of touched on earlier, you really can't compete when someone says, this is the word of God. It's kind of end of conversation. Um, The issue is that these books, if they're read, are often divorced from their original context of what was going on in the world in which these texts were written, who wrote them, um, what might have influenced their creation, and also what were the original languages these texts were written in. And so a lot of that gets lost and passages that seem to be homophobic or, um, you know, saying that certain actions or way of being, ways of being are, aren't permissible. Um, there's a lot more going on, but people, I think, including people with good intentions, will just say, well, my Bible says this, so therefore I cannot condone um, homosexuality. I can't, I can't get the two to agree and I have to choose my Bible. And so I think there's some, in my perspective, bad um, <laughs> interpretation taking place. Um, and 
there's a lot of other issues around how we relate to sacred texts and prioritizing certain verses over others, um, et cetera. So there's a lot to unpack there, I think. But the takeaway is that the Bible has been used as a tool and a weapon to hurt queer people within the church. Um, I think aside from that, though, there's even the bigger issue of how religions so often are aligned with power. Kind of what we were talking about with the origins of the Christian community, they emerged as a very small sect that existed, you know, in poverty. They practiced mutual aid. They lived in community and shared with one another. And it was very egalitarian in a way that the rest of their society was not. They existed in opposition to empire. Their leader, Jesus, was murdered by empire. Um, but a couple hundred years in, you know, Christianity merges with empire and everything changes. And we very much see the continuation of that today with how Christianity has aligned itself with political power in the US and specifically the white evangelical church. And so I think that is perhaps the most um, significant barrier to inclusion of LGBTQ plus people in the church is that queerness fundamentally is transgressive. It upends our social norms related to love and sex and gender and relationships and family. It, it questions and challenges all of that. And those norms are used to control people and to maintain the status quo. And so queerness in that sense is a threat to power. It's a threat to being able to control people. And so for those reasons, I think pastors and churches and communities, they use these other tools like the Bible um, to carry out their ultimate agenda, which is to maintain control and power. Mm -hmm. And so until there is some sort of reckoning with the, within the church, which I think is beginning to take place, um, around who do we actually exist for and what is actually our purpose? Is it to follow the teachings of Jesus or is it to be an instrument of political power? Then I think these issues will unfortunately continue. Mm. That is so excellently put um, in a great summary of everything because, yeah, I think that might end up being in its own episode at some point. But um yeah, the, the fusion of the church and the state, even though separation of church and state is uh, inherent in our constitution, uh, it still intangibly affects politics. Um, and so I, actually one of our former professors wrote, uh, I wrote, uh, I read Jesus and John Wayne, um, but yeah, by um, Kristen Dumez. Uh, I just had to Google and remind myself, but um, that gives a great, very thorough look into, yeah, the kind of that fusion of uh, religion becoming a tool for political power. Um, so if people are listening and want to take a deep dive, that's that's an option. But um, yeah, I, I totally get that point of like religion being used as uh, an instrument to exert control. And when people question that control using the Bible uh cherry picking you didn't you politely didn't use that word but yeah favoring certain verses over others in order to uh you know uh, bring about a uh what's the word i'm looking for to legit yeah to legitimize a point of view um is 
as something that has been happening, not just as it relates to queer identities, but, um, uh, you know, I can imagine women's rights and, and, and pretty much every social cause having been opposed by religion at some point. Um, what's interesting to me is how that ends. Um, and I know it, it's whole like wide scale community reckoning and deciding what religion should be used for. Um, Cause my next question was, do you think religion and queer identities can coexist? But maybe I'm going to tailor that question to say, how do we bring queer identities back into the church? Is that possible? What would it take? Uh, you know, and are there, um, communities either within Christianity or within other religions that have done that successfully um, and have kind of recalibrated? It's a huge question. I'm sorry. I'm throwing these like curveballs at you. I don't know. Yeah, no, I think religion and queer identities can and have always existed and coexisted in, in beautiful ways in prophetic ways. And there are so many queer people of faith who are doing theology and who are scholars of the Bible and who are thought leaders and podcast hosts and um, they're everywhere. And I think, and I think it's incredible because one option when experiencing harm is to walk away. And I think that is always a valid choice to walk away from the church is always valid and can be very healthy um, decision to make. However, there are many people who choose to stay and or who feel called to stay, who say that I will not let you take my faith from me. I feel a connection to this higher power. I feel a connection to this tradition and I'm not going to let you dictate the terms on how, if or how I belong in this space. Um, so I think that's important to know because I think in the mainstream religion and queerness, or transness, they're seen as at odds. And there are many people out here um, demonstrating that these two identities can coexist in harmony. And I think some of the most brilliant theological work that's being done is by queer theologians and by theologians who hold other marginalized identities because they have a lens and ability to see what is in sacred text and what is in society and interpret it in such a fresh and really liberating way that I think first the church needs queer people and would be wise to listen to their voices and their wisdom and their insight. Um, to your question about how or should we bring try to bring queer people back into the church, I think... Um, I, yeah, I just want to reiterate, I guess, that it's always valid to leave. And I don't think queer people need to be in the church, but I think they deserve to be in the church. They deserve to be have access um, to be pastors, to get married mm -hmm. in the church, to have their children baptized and welcomed. Um, so I think it's a matter of will the church recognize the beauty and wisdom of the queer community and embrace queer people um, and the queer people that are already in their midst that might feel somewhat marginalized, will they do that? Will they have the ability or courage to do that? Um, 
because I really think the church would be so much better off and so much so enriched um, if they were to take that step. Yeah, um, a million different you know variations on the phrase "the least of these" jumped into my head. Um, yeah, and it's amazing how all of that you know passage memory work comes back. Uh, but I I think it's I I. We talk a lot about like queer social justice issue, issues on this podcast, and we always talk about rights. So, you know, we did an episode on queer parenting, and it's the you know the right and the, and the ability to to have a family, to have kids, to have that family recognized by the state. Um, and so I was like, oh, this is kind of you know the right to religion. And then I was like, wait, that's an argument a lot of these uh, institutions use when they perceive discrimination from, you know, government or from other social groups. It's like, well, I have a right to my religion. Uh, you do have a right to that religion, but then everybody else has a right to their religion, whatever that looks like. Um, so I think that, like, flip side of that statement isn't always recognized or, or brought up in these situations where it's like, yes, you can practice your kind of religion uh, or... or um, spirituality but then other people should be able to as well whatever that looks like whether or not you deem it as a you know um, misinterpretation of the bible it's still legitimate um yeah i i think there's i i say it in the in our in the intro to the show um to one of the missions is to amplify um the the voices and identities of of historically marginalized communities and so maybe the bridging that gap starts with that amplifying queer theologians that are doing the work having the discussions because I I also find like I can think of like a lot of examples from people that I talk to from where I grew up that it like just doing that work and thinking about these hard issues is not something that they have interest in doing um it's too it's a lot of work to dive into what the Bible actually says or to deconstruct certain things. So like you mentioned, they would rather, they can't, they can't make that fit together. So they're just going to choose their Bible. Um, so the people that are doing that work deserve to be celebrated and amplified. And then maybe that's a, a first step. So um, I'm, I'll stop rambling, but, and we're getting close on time, but um, you mentioned like leaving is always valid. And for the people that have left, um, and uh, like, especially queer people, what, what are those steps to kind of being okay with that leaving? Because like, you can know that you ca were caused harm in an environment and you can know that it was not what helped you, but leaving, that doesn't always mean that leaving felt good or feel, continues to feel good. Um, like I know for me, I, I'm, I don't practice any religion. I don't go to church, um, but I still feel religious. Um, but just as an organized institution, it doesn't feel like something I can engage with. And like saying that, I was like, oh, I don't love that. Like I, I still feel like I wish I could be, you know, the same enthusiastic participant in religion as I was even though I know that that's not healthy for me, how do you reconcile that, like, that kind of, it's not Stockholm Syndrome, I wouldn't say that, but, like, the, the like, kind of still longing to have that, but knowing that it's not good for you, where does, 
what is how does that happen and how do you resolve that yeah i think it's so difficult i really resonate with what you shared i um i haven't been part of a religious formal really religious community or church for over 10 years and yet i'm a very spiritual person i went to seminary and there's part of me where I'm like, oh, I would just would love to be able to go somewhere like that on a Sunday morning. Yeah. yeah. Um, to especially, you know, thinking about having kids someday to have a sort of structure that can support family and provides rituals to mark life passages. Yeah. So I think it's important in going through the process of deconstruction or of recognizing the trauma you might have experienced in a religious space to create a lot of um, space where you can care for yourself because it is a profound loss and it's there's there can be a lot of grief associated with it um, grief for your former self and the pain that they experienced and what they were put through that you wish you could protect yourself from, but you can't. There's grief of the community and identity you once had that you don't or has you know changed now. There's um, the suppressed, I think, pain sometimes. Like we were talking about earlier, it's it's a complex form of trauma that is very kind of subtle and insidious and happens over time. So it, it's not like there's this one big event usually that you can grieve and, you know, reckon with. So really giving your space, yourself space and your body the opportunity to bring those experiences to the surface and offer compassion to yourself um, because it's a loss and I don't think that will ever change or necessarily get easier to cope with or... It gets easier to cope with, but it's the fundamental reality of the situation doesn't necessarily change. And um, I think also what's really important is finding, trying to explore what um, needs of yours were met in that space and where might you be able to meet those needs now. So social isolation and loneliness, those are huge issues in our society. And traditionally, religious spaces were um, an opportunity to meet those needs and provide a sense of community and fraternity. So where are your people now? Where can you find them? Where are um, like-minded people or like-hearted people that are asking similar questions and who you can be honest with about your life and what's going on and um, journey together in some sort of way that can look, you know, it can be look so many different ways, but I think that sense of community is important. Um, Bell Hook says that none of something along the lines of no one heals in isolation. And I think that is just so true. You know, the, the harm of religious trauma happens in community. And I think it's really important to have people that can accompany you as you heal and work to kind of create a new sense of self. Um, as we talked about earlier too, there's there's lots of other ways that you might be able to connect with your body in the way that you did when you worshiped. Like singing is a very powerful experience and somatically is healing. And so mm -hmm. go to a concert, sing your heart out, you know, like hum, um, even humming while you're doing the dishes, like that's healing. And so. 
I think um, it's important to honor the desires and needs that you're feeling as it relates to missing a spiritual or religious community, but explore where might be healthy spaces to get those needs met now. Yeah, that's as you were describing all of this, I was like, it kind of it it rings similarly to coming out, you know, when you when you decide to to you know announce your identity, where you're. And I'm glad you brought up grief because it is, yeah, kind of this grief of like, I imagined myself married uh, with two and a half kids and probably living in West Michigan still. And now I don't, I hesitate to say I don't want it because like I said, there's still kind of that, like, I was told that this is what I should want. So there's still that portion of it. And I'm thrilled with my life now. And I live with my boyfriend and, and you know, everything's great, but it's that like, okay, the, you know, my life is not going to be as I thought it would be at one point. So what aspects of what I thought would be are still important to me? And how do I do that in this new era? So, you know, yeah, when you come out, is, is wanting kids still something that you think you want? And why did you think you want it? And is that doable now? With religion, it might be you know, is that sense of community or, you know, for some people it's an outlet for creativity, making music, um, you know, writing sermons, whatever that is, whatever satisfaction you got out of those portions of religion, are you able to bring those into your day-to-day life now? How, what does that look like? So yeah, for me now, I, it's my community is not, um, you know, inside of a church with pews, but like my gym uh, is very, community driven we have potlucks and we you know it's it there's a lot of the similar things that happened in a church environment but it is now you know in a secular crossfit gym so it can it can look a lot of different ways but it just struck me that like coming out uh you know sexuality wise mimics a lot of leaving maybe a religious church where you're kind of bringing some parts with you, leaving some parts behind and mourning those uh, and grieving those and figuring out what, where you are now and what you want your life to look like. So ugh, we're, I won't push it too far uh, because we're close on time and there, this has been such a good episode, even if nobody gets any value uh, out of it, aside from me, for me, it's been wonderful uh, to talk about all of this. Um, but I like to end every episode with um, the question of if you had to put a bow on this topic, if you had to put a pin in it, a, a moral to the story, um, and send people home with that, what, what would it be regarding this topic? Oh, that's such a beautiful question, and it's hard to pick one bow. Well, I think one thing I just want to drive home is that you are sacred. Like, everyone listening to this is sacred. And your sexuality is sacred. Your expression of gender is sacred. How you show up in the world is unique and sacred and valid and beautiful and should never be shamed or hidden away. And so I think that's what this topic is really about is how um, certain environments force us to separate from those parts of who we are and hide them and exile them and they get shamed. And it's such a difficult way to live and um, we don't flourish when we're living that way. And so I think a lot of the work, like you mentioned, of coming out is 
how do I integrate all of who I am? How do I honor all of who I am and allow it to come to the table and be part of this life experience? Because all of it matters, all of it is holy, and all, all of you and all of me, we all deserve to be here. Um, so I think it's, it's, a, it's a long journey, that process is ongoing, but I think that's what it's all about. So beautifully said. Uh, I, yeah, this is, I'm getting a little warm fuzzies, but it's, yeah, this is, it's such a, it is always an ongoing process to, to, to bring every part of yourself, uh, into view and be able to celebrate everything and, and know what you want out of life and how best to, to get that. And yeah, it's a lot. So, um, yeah, I just wanted to say thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Like we said, this work of of, of diving into this huge issue of, of religion and queer identities or, or marginalized identities uh, is hard. Uh, and so I just wanted to say thank you for doing that work and for sharing it with us um, because that is um, a, a monumental task and I'm um, so grateful that you're doing it. Um, that, that being said, I want to restate the disclaimer for everybody that like this is uh, two people's thoughts on a huge uh, topic where there are, you know, that transcends all sorts of identities and religions and, and locations and thoughts. So um, if, if you're listening and it didn't feel like we hit the mark, our <laughs> apologies. But uh, hopefully more episodes will continue to dive into, into this and all the intersections. So um yeah, thank you, Ellie, for, for your time and for coming on the show. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. It was, it was a joy and an honor to talk with you and to learn more about this important work that you're engaged in. So thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks for joining us for our episode about religious trauma. For all the things that Ellie mentioned in this episode, I will include it in the episode description below. Down there, you will also find a quick survey to let us know how you feel about charting queer health. What can we improve on? What are we doing well? Things like that. It only takes about 30 seconds and we'd really appreciate your thoughts. Thanks for listening.